Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. As part of our Auschwitz Not Long Ago, Not Far Away exhibit, the Reagan Foundation has been hosting authors whose books cover the atrocities of the Holocaust, mainly told through survivors' eyes. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back to our in-person event with Nakama Birnbaum, who shares with us the story of her grandmother and her time in Auschwitz in Nakama's latest book, The Redhead of Auschwitz, A True Story. During this program, Nakama sat down in conversation with Reagan Foundation and Institute Chief Marketing Officer Melissa Giller to discuss The Redhead of Auschwitz, which is a book as full of life as it is of death. It is about the intricacies of Jewish culture that still exist today and the tender experiences that are universal to all humanity, family, coming of age, and first love. It is a story that celebrates believing in yourself no matter the odds. This is a story about the little redheaded girl who thought she could, and so she did. Let's listen. So I have a zillion questions, so we're going to get into it. And I'd really like to start way back at the beginning. Um, we've been very fortunate throughout this exhibition to have many um, survivors, family members, come and tell their stories of their parents or their grandparents. And we're hearing from these survivors and their family members that sometimes they were told at the age of five, and sometimes they didn't find out until they were 50 or 55. So I'm curious, how old were you when you learned of your grandmother's story? Thanks so much. First, I want to say thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. My um, grandmother would have appreciated it mm -hmm. so much. So thank you. Um, I don't remember ever having a time where I didn't know the story. Like there was no time where I was sat down and told this is what happened. I grew up with it. It was in my bones. It was in my blood. I remember my grandmother would talk and talk about how we have to educate the world on what happened, and I kind of thought she was being a little paranoid because I said, everybody knows what happened. And then afterwards, when I was like writing the book and studying up on it, I was like, oh, everybody does not know what happened. It was so much part of like a fact of life for me. So I always knew what happened. She was always telling her stories. And they were also said in like kind of casual ways, like, um, one time I was grocery shopping with her and we were just talking about, it was a little bit raining at now and where I'm from, it rains, but apparently from here, here it doesn't <laughs> rain so much. So thank you for coming out in the rain, that's really nice. And um, she, I, I was grocery shopping with her and it was raining and I came out of the grocery and I was started getting all nervous for her because she was older and we had all our packages and she was getting wet and I was like, Bobby, that's what I called her, Bobby, come under the awning, please, 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 you're getting wet. I'm gonna go get the car, I'll, I'll pick you up, don't get wet. And she was like, this is nothing. <laughs> She's like, when I, was in, when I was in Auschwitz, I, was wear I had nothing to wear and it was a, in the middle of the winter and there was this crazy downpour and we, had, we were standing in roll call and they counted all the numbers and just to, they, she said the Nazis had like their boots on and raincoats and fully protected and we were wearing, she said, nothing. It was a little slip of cloth that they had. 
and the rain was just coming down on them. And she said, just to humiliate them further, they said afterwards, oh, sorry, we messed up the numbers. We got to count everyone all over again. She said she sat outside the entire, st stood outside the entire day in the rain, and the rain wouldn't let up. And she said, this few drizzles, <laughs> this is nothing. I'm a queen in the rain right now. And that's how she, that's how I heard those stories. It wasn't, oh, here's what happened. It was, I'm a queen in the rain because I used to be not, I used to have to go in the rain with no protection. So I love I kinda, that attitude. Yeah. That's fun. Um, as I was reading the book, I wondered, so what made you decide to write down her story to get it published? And then I was also curious, so for those who've read it, the book's in the first person as if Rosie's writing it. So what made you write it in that way? Oh, thank you. So um, she, it was really her dream to get her story published. She was always talking about it. Someone has to write my story. Someone has to tell my story. Um, so, and her reason for writing it was really for education reasons. And she really believed that if you knew what happened to her, the world would work harder to make sure it never happens again. And she, which I find incredible of her, that she so much believed in the goodness of humanity after everything she went through. She said, well, no, if people really hear this, if people understand what happened, then this won't happen again. So she was very passionate about it. Like I always heard her speaking mm -hmm. of, someone has to tell my story. Um, and then for me personally, I always loved reading and writing. Um, and I wasn't so much passionate about telling her Holocaust story. I wanted to tell her childhood story, mm -hmm. which is in the book a lot, because to me, she sounded like a main character from one of my books. Mm -hmm. She was really funny, and she was so full of life, and she was so persistent and stubborn. Um, and the stories that she told me as a little girl, I was like, you did that? <laughs> like, you, you believed in yourself. That's really cool. And um, for example, she told me, um, she used to have a trick to see um, if the boy she liked liked her back. You take a flower mm -hmm. and pull the petals. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Mm -hmm. And she said every time, for some reason, the, the flower was landing on, he loves me not. And she threw away all those flowers and crumpled it up until she finally got one flower mm -hmm. that said, he loves me. And mm -hmm. she's like, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I was like, she's, she's, she has a, a lot of grit and... and uh, mm -hmm self-confidence, and I thought she sounded like one of the characters I loved reading about in a book. And also growing up, I've read a lot of Holocaust books, and a lot of them were about um, other people saving someone who was about to go into the camp or maybe after the camp. And the people that were going through that were always not really spoken about in a, in a vibrant way. And I said, well, I know someone who's the main character of this mm -hmm. story. And she's, that's my baby, everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's a, bye, thank you. <laughs> and a good husband. Mm -hmm. I know someone who's a main character of the, of the main character, and I think her story deserves to be told as well, not just somebody saving. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote about it in first person. Actually, I, I first started writing about it in third person, and then I wanted it to be more um, like you feel with the character. Mm -hmm. You get, you get behind the eyes of the character. So I switched it to first person. We succeeded for yeah, sure. And you. my next couple of questions actually come off of that because I loved reading about her childhood. And one of the things that made me smile so much was reading her passion and joy about dance. And it really made me wonder, um, 
after the you know, Holocaust and as she went on with her life, was she ever able to find that passion again? Yes, yeah, she loved dancing. She loved singing and dancing. She, I think it came off a little bit of an insecurity because her sister was the smart one in school mm -hmm. and she never did well in school, but she was good at dance. Mm -hmm. So she was good at dance with everything that she had. And um, afterwards she was always dancing. She was always singing and always dancing. Um, even she fell a few months before she died. And the doctors were like, okay, she's not going to walk. She was 96 years old. So she, they were like, she's not going to walk anymore. And she was, no one's going to tell me I'm not going to walk. I'm going to walk. And I have a video of her, which is just so cute. Uh, uh, my father was videoing her. I said, do a little dance for us. And she was in that walker trying so hard to walk. And she was dancing. She, she was always dancing, even until then. She loved oh, that. What an amazing woman. Yeah. Now, you start every single chapter in the book with a Torah um, verse, um, and I wondered what prompted you to do that, and how did you choose which one to go with? Yeah, I actually have a very interesting story, what happened to me with that, but um, I, I started each one off with, with Psalms because mm -hmm. she reminded me of King David. Well, first of all, she had the red hair, and it said that King David had a ruddy complexion, which I assume means red hair, but... You know, we can have the, <laughs> the poetic license there. But she, was, she, she reminded me of King David more in the way of her stubborn spirit and how much she loved life. And it says all through the Psalms, like, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live, and I'm going to proclaim, proclaim the works of God. And um, that's, I actually started the book with a quote from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And he said, I will not die, yet I shall live and I shall proclaim the work of God. Sometimes the refusal to die, the insistence mm -hmm. on the holiness of life is itself a work of God. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me so much of my grandmother because when she got to Auschwitz, all of her friends were gathered around her and they said, we're going to heaven from here. Mm -hmm. And they knew and they were under the smoke and the Nazis told them, you see that smoke? That's your brothers, your sisters, your sons, your daughters, your cousins. Everyone you know and love, that's all that remains of them and you're gonna be next. And so her friend said, it's okay, we're going to go to heaven from here. And she said, I'm not going to heaven from here. You can go to heaven if you want. I'm going home from here. After that, we'll see. But I'm not going to heaven now. And her friend said she was crazy. And she said, no, I'm going home from here. And that, that love of life um, really reminded me of all throughout that I see, no matter what King David went through. Mm -hmm. He went through so much. And he was always still turning to God and loving life and wanting more life. So I appreciated that, that love of life so much from her. Um, and it was hard to find the parallels mm -hmm. of, the, of the Psalms with, with um, I had each chapter, a Psalm that had to do with that chapter. I put it in, in the beginning of it. And um, at one point, actually, I couldn't find one of the, I couldn't find the corresponding Psalms to it. And I was like, okay, okay, God, I'm, I'm not going to have all the chapters have <laughs> it, and then one not. So if we don't find one now, mm -hmm. I'm not putting it in. I'll just take them all out. Like, it has, to, it has to flow. And then I opened up the, the book of Psalms. I want to see if I could find it. And it, something came so, so, like, perfect for it. This was my grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, the I was writing about the chapter where she was in Bergen-Belsen, and she said they slept in a swamp. Like, it wasn't, there was no floor. They slept, the slime mm -hmm. and the mud was reaching up to their necks, and that's how they had to sleep. And they were all crying and crying and crying there until one, 
woman said, girls, stop crying, and started singing to them. Mm -hmm. And she was singing and singing and singing to them, and they all fell asleep. She was singing them songs like their mother's lullabies that, that they used to fall asleep. But then she said, we were, in, we were in hell, but there was a voice of an angel that was singing to mm -hmm. us. And so I couldn't find the Psalms for that. And so the, this was what I, what it, it really opened up to it. He raised me from the pit of raging waters, from mud which is slimy. He set me upon a rock, my feet firmly establishing my steps. He put into my mouth a new song. The, multiple, the multitude shall see, and they will be awed, and they shall trust in God. So it, it fits so perfectly. perfectly. So wow. I can't say I did it myself. <laughs> perfectly. Um, so you said earlier that you had read a lot of books on the Holocaust. I have too. And um, usually it's either the full time, the ones I've read anyway, you know, the full time in the, in the time in the camps or like the whole childhood and then the time in the camps and then their time after. And you did something different. Um, every single chapter without fail, you don't ever skip this. It's a chapter of childhood, a chapter of the camps, a chapter of childhood, a chapter of the camps. And I loved it because sort of it brought her, you know, you kept getting reminded of her spirit and how she grew up and her love of family. And, and I wondered how you chose to write the book in that way. Yeah, thank you. So I, I wanted to remind, like, there was a few reasons. And one of them was what you said, like, to bring her, how did she get here? How did she get to this place of her resilience and her spirit? And they showed something that happened in her childhood that kind of correlated with it and brought her there. Um, but also, I really wanted the reader to keep being reminded of her humanity mm -hmm. and not because the situations that she was in and, and even just reading about it, and I'm sure if you've seen the exhibit or other things, they, the, the main um, thing that stuck out of me is that the Nazis tried so hard to make them into a number. And, to, and that's how all the propaganda happened to begin with. They were subhuman. And I wanted to have the reader to keep reading back. This is a person who loved her family. This is a person who loved mm -hmm. to dance, who was jealous of her sister, who loved mm -hmm. her little brother. This is a person who loved food, who had an aunt's wedding that was so much fun. Mm -hmm. This was a person, this was a person that these things are happening to, not just another number, not just I wanted the reader to really feel connected to her as they're reading what happened to her. Um, and also like to break up the, it was, it's really heavy the things that she went through. Um, but not everything that she went through was heavy. Hmm. And I wanted it, like, sort of like what I was saying in the beginning, she wasn't just a victim. She was a person, and bad things didn't always happen to her. Very good things happened to her, too. Um, so I wanted to show both. Well, you succeeded. Yeah, I, I really you. felt like I knew her. Um, so, of course, you know, you're going to read a Holocaust book and there's going to be good moments and bad moments, but a lot of it's going to be heartbreaking. And um, for the most part, I read your book really fast. I didn't want to put it down. Um, but there was a page in your book where I had to close it and be done for the day. And that was when um, your grandmother and her sister and brother and mother um, arrive in Auschwitz and they go through the selection process. And um, Rosie and her sister and brother are sent one way and the mother is sent to the other. And for all of us who know what the Holocaust is, we know what that means. And the younger brother didn't want to be without his mom. And he breaks free of the line of those that are not dying today and goes and runs into his mom's arms and off they go. And um, if I read your book right, Rosie didn't realize that they were sent to their deaths until right. she was liberated. Right. Did she that didn't. haunt her? 
it did, it did and it didn't. I know my aunt just told me that she had a picture of her mother and her brother next to her bed um, and she would wake up and my aunt said she had to take the picture away at the end of her life because she would just look at the picture and cry even so many years later, like what happened? She loved her little brother. He was, her father died when she was five. He was only 13 when they came to the camps but he was the man of the family and he was this adorable boy. They adored him um, and he, he uh, tried to take care of them. She said that she was once bullied for having freckles and he saved up all his money and bought her freckle cream. Mm. And she did the, freckle, the freckles went away. Mm. She really, really loved him and he was so cute. And it, it broke her heart that his life was cut so short. Um, but she also said that he was small and she thinks maybe he wouldn't have survived mm. anyway. So at least he <coughs> didn't suffer too much. Mm. He went straight to the gas chambers and that was enough suffering for anybody. For No one should have to suffer like that. But he didn't have... Um, he didn't have to work and work and then be sent to mm -hmm. his death. Yeah. Now, speaking of the gas chambers, um, your grandmother and her sister are sent to the gas chambers. Um, the, they, they are sent to die. And for whatever reason, um, they didn't go off. And so your grandmother and, and her sister are one of the very, very few who lived to tell of that experience. Um, what did she say to you about that time? She, I remember her clearly saying there was one hair between life and death for me. Mm -hmm. She didn't know that, that, what that, ha that happened. She just thought she was going to take a shower. And she said she was disappointed afterwards that she didn't get her shower. Mm -hmm. And she said there was a, a block altister, which was someone that was in the camps for years already. That was, she said her face was like a stone. She was so numb to everything that was going on. And she used to see hundreds of girls going into the gas chambers and then she had to clean out all their bodies afterwards. And she said after they went into, they went into the gas chambers, she thought she was taking, they told them they're taking a shower and then there was a massive banging on the door and a Nazi was, set, was like, what are you doing? We need more workers. This was at the end of the, end of the war and they needed more workers in the ammunition factory. And said, these are, these are young girls. We need these workers. What are you doing? What are you doing? Get them out, get them out, get them out. And she was like, walked out and she said the block altister's face melted. She sees this, it was 700 girls that walked out of that gas chamber and she said she saw all these girls walking out and the, the woman started crying and she said girls you don't know where you're coming out of, you don't know, you're going to live, you're gonna go, you're gonna go on and she never saw her emotional before, she didn't see her have any emotions before but still it was only till afterwards that she realized exactly what happened to her. And that was only one of the many, many times she seemed to escape death, yeah. right? So um, there's one point where there's a um, Nazi who keeps ordering her off to go to the hospital and she refuses to go and he hits her and she gets back in line and he hits her and, she, and, and, and finally he gave up. I mean, what Nazi gives up? Um, in another one, she had a tumor and she let a doctor cut it out without any anesthesia, which obviously could have killed her. Um, and so many other things. Where did that resilience come from? Do you know? I don't know because I, I always like kind of felt bad about myself when I learned about the story because I don't think I would last 10 mm -hmm. minutes and she was there for a full year and fighting with all of her might. Um, I think, you know, God put it in her because she was meant to come home. I think that was another reason why I, I called it the redhead of Auschwitz because for the most part, redheads are pretty stubborn. Um, and even, 
she she was kind of like even the story with the with the doctor mm -hmm. saying you have to go to the other side it wasn't so much that she it wasn't so much that she thought she was going to die if she goes to the other side it was she was not sick so That's don't right. tell me to go to the hospital yeah. if i'm not sick and she was that that stubborn um which saved her life and even even at that point her sister she kept getting really beaten because she kept coming back to the side of the healthy people her sister said stop it already you're driving me crazy i can't see you going through this just go to the other side and 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 you'll go to the hospital and you'll come back and really they sent them all to the gas chambers and she said no i'm not going there i'm not sick i'm not sick i'm not going to go there so um that's how that's how she survived mm -hmm. and i think it was it was also her love of life mm -hmm. she really loved life she she loved to live and i i once time asked her like what was your motivation? What was getting you through it? Um, and she said she, she wanted to have a family. Mm -hmm. Family was so important to her. Growing up, they had, she, her father died when she was really young. Her grandfather infused so much love into them and her mother. Um, and she wanted to have her own family. And she wasn't, she was young. She was 18 years old and she, she wasn't ready to finish that. Now, speaking of that and her resilience, um, you know, and, and as you read the book, she really kept her sister going. She kept friends going. She kept family members going. She, uh, strangers that she met in the in the barracks, she kept going. Um, but as the time in the Holocaust went on and on, she seemed to really get weaker and weaker, and she seemed to want to actually give up. And it was her sister who stepped up um, and really kept her going. But what I found so moving was when she was part of the death march, and she pretty much gave up. And um, just if I just sit down, I'll get shot, and then I don't have to have any more pain. And she started having these flashbacks, and she really felt that her mother was there, and her grandfather was there, and her brother was there, and her father was there, and she felt their spirits pick her up and carry her <coughs> to the final destination. Um, can you talk about her faith um, with God um, and did she carry that through, I would have to assume, after the war? Yeah. So uh, it, that really inspires me, the fact that her, she said at the end she was really hallucinating already. They were going so long without food mm -hmm. and so long without water. And she, she knew she was hallucinating, but she was really hallucinating. And she saw her grandfather, and he was telling her how wonderful she was, and he was giving her hugs, and that she said she wouldn't have survived without that, which just goes to show, I mean, my grandmother was my best friend, and now every grandmother I see, I'm like, you don't know what you're doing for your grandchildren. It, it brings them so far, and, it, and it's, it's, it's everything, the love that you can give to them. But um, she, she really felt at the end, by the, the death march, she said she, there was no way that she was going to make it, and which was also kind of like she was always pushing people through, and she was really making her sister survive. Her sister wanted to give up a bunch mm -hmm. of times. Um, and then at the end, she said, I'm going to sit down. And they knew they got shot. If they were lucky, they got shot. Or they would just be in if they sat down. And she said, I'm just going to sit down. And she said, her sister said, oh, no, you don't. You made me survive mm -hmm. this whole thing. You do not sit down. And she said, no, but I, I can't take another step. And her sister said, you have to. You made me do this whole thing. You know they're marching us because it's the end. It's the end, and you're going to get there. And she said, her sister made her take that other mm -hmm. step. And she said, taking that step felt like she was lifting the whole world on her knees. She said she was 
so miserable and so hungry and so tired. There was no sleep and she was really suffering. And then she felt just like, she mm -hmm. thought it was like angels mm -hmm. bringing her the rest of the way. She, there was no logical way she could have made it. So it was yeah. really moving. Yeah. More from our Reagan Forum with Nakama Birnbaum after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Nakama Birnbaum. Um, so speaking about the Nazis, right? So everyone knows how horrific it was and how horrific they were. <clears throat> and she's working in the factory and there's a, uh, a Nazi guard who's literally every day threatening to hang her. You know, that's the beam I'm gonna hang you from. This is the rope I'm gonna use. Um, but yet there was another Nazi guard who helped her, um, you know, the, um, actually pulled the bullets out of the water to save her life. Um, did she share other types of stories like that of, of some of the guards or some of the experiences that weren't as awful as the others? Yeah, she, I, I was asking my mother, like, what kind of lessons do you, do you think that she left you with? And she said, it doesn't, she said she always told us you can't control where you are, you can't control what happens to you, but there's always the people that are helping other people, and they're always and there's the people that are making it worse for other people, and just be the person that's helping the other person because you can't control anything else, and and at, at least do that. So there was this Nazi that was really kind. Actually, mm -hmm. I was watching um, testimonies from other people that were in that um, ammunition factory, and they all spoke about this Nazi, Edgar. Mm -hmm. His name was, and he was so kind. He used to like hold up to the window. Um, newspapers that said the allies are advancing so the girls could see like don't give up they're coming for you you're gonna you're gonna be saved um, and he would help everyone they all spoke mm -hmm. about him she said she wished she could have met him because he saved her life mm -hmm. um, and he was he was so kind um, and but she never like I, I she didn't even know his name I did the the research and oh, okay. I, I found his name but we couldn't find anything else about him um, yeah, so mm. that was the only story of, of kindness, I think, mm. from a Nazi that she had. Mm. But she always said you, you saw so clearly who were the people. And that's also, she thought, that what helped her survive, because she had nothing else. She said, I'm going to survive to help other people. Mm. And so that helped her get through. So you actually just mentioned you, you did the research to find his name. So um, I'm curious, how do you go about writing this book? I mean, obviously, she's been telling you these stories all her life. Yeah. but it, it, there's got to be so many other stories you don't have or what kind of research you have to do on where she grew up and how was that process? Yeah, so my brother-in-law, amazing, shout out, shout out to mm -hmm. Daniel Machles, he videoed her saying her whole story from beginning to end. He sat like, it was like a two-year process. Mm -hmm. Mind you, she got dressed up to, for each mm -hmm. video thing, like with her, everything perfect. Um, and if she wasn't dressed to her standard, he had to go home and come back again. But he videoed, and, and she was talking about the Holocaust, but 
But this is her, that was her, um, he videoed everything and he kept sending the videos to me just so we, we had it in chronological order and everything that happened. Um, and then I was, I was living in Israel at the time and I went to Yad Vashem's library. Mm. I would go there and there was a librarian there that helped me. And I saw, I, I knew, let's say like there was the 700 girls who survived the gas chambers. So most of them survived the war, not all of them. And so I l listened to all their testimonies mm. um, to just make sure that the, the facts were matching up. And a lot of the stories she told me, I, I almost couldn't believe them. I said, did that really happen? Did that really happen? So I kept fact-checking her until one time the librarian like, got upset at me. She said, you have the best resource. You have your grandmother who went there. You don't have to check in some book. She said it happened, and it, and it happened, and I kept seeing. It was almost like I didn't want to believe that it happened. So, no. Incredible. Um, I would like to turn it over to the audience to see if anyone has any questions. We just ask that you raise your hand so we can bring a microphone to you so that the um, audience watching at home can hear you. So does anyone, we have a question in the front. What do you think your grandmother would say about the current political climate and what is happening now? And maybe any advice she would give us? I think that I'm, I'm almost happy she didn't have to see what happened on October 7th. Um, I think it's brutality that didn't even happen to her. I mean, I don't, ha I, I don't think I have to say exactly what happened to little children. And I mean, it, it happened to children in the Holocaust also. Um, so I mean, losing her was really hard. And that's like my, my only, I'm ha she would have been devastated that, that little girls had to have be bleeding to death and, and just for civilians for no, for no reason. So um, I don't, I'm happy. I'm happy she didn't have to, to see that. But I also, something that was giving me hope was that I was kind of like when, at, when I, everything started, I started realizing everything that was happening, I was kind of like, that's it. Like we thought there was hope for this world, but there's mm -hmm. not. Like, and then I had to remind myself, no, she went through all of this and she still believed that there's hope for this world. And so I'm not gonna give up either, even though it's hard to, to see. Mm. Yeah, thanks. There was, yeah, Trisha way back in the back. Hi, two, two questions. Um, firstly, <coughs> how old was your grandmother when she went into Auschwitz and secondly, um, outside of the newspapers being held up by that soldier, did she have any indication on how the war was going and if liberation was coming soon? Um, thank you so much. She was 18 when she was sent to Auschwitz. She turned 19 there. Um, and she didn't really know. She didn't have any indication. Um, I, I think she wouldn't wasn't even sure if she believed the, the newspapers that, that they're going to be saved. She said when they were told, um, you're free, they, they started laughing from the shock of it. Like, we're free? What does that mean? We're free? We're free? They couldn't believe it. They, someone had to take them out. Like, look, look, you're free. Um, so she didn't really know that it was ending. And also at the end, she was, was very much surviving the day because she was so sick and weak at that point.
brilliant. There's the beautiful story about how, again, they don't believe they're free and they're taken out of where they're hiding. And there's a, it's a, I don't want to use the word garden, but a field of flowers. Yeah, and wild the, flowers. And, and the beauty she found in the flowers. Yes. I thought that was, that was such a beautiful moment. Yeah, when she, was, when she was liberated, the first thing that she saw was they were in um, Theresienstadt at that point and they were in a bunker underground and they came out and the first thing that she saw were wild flowers that grew up top all over. They were just wild for like all her eyes to see. And she said, she said, oh, I felt like God was telling me, you're gonna go home. There's gonna be a life for you. There's gonna be beauty in this world still, even that you didn't think that could exist anymore. Um, so that those flowers gave her so much hope that you're not gonna feel like this forever. It's gonna get better. Do we have any, oh, there's a Christian right here. Hello, um, I'm a second generation Holocaust um, child. Uh, my mother was in Auschwitz and we went back with her um, like in 2000, the year 2000, she hadn't been back there. And we took a, a tour of Auschwitz and there were some Pepperdine University students there and the docent was giving a speech and everything. And my mother usually doesn't chime in and she says to the docent, that's not how it happened. I'm an eyewitness wow. yeah. of, and then all the students come clamming around her mm -hmm. and they were just in awe that they had really met a real live Auschwitz survivor. Wow. My mother lived to 100. Wow. And so, and her mother also lived to 100 wow. who didn't go to the camp, but she was hidden out by a very prominent family in Poland. And so the stories my mother told me, my father told us, um, I don't think my father ever got over the war because yeah. that's all he talked about. But my mother forgot about it. She wanted to forget it. But when we went there, it all came back to her. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's amazing to be a child of a Holocaust survivor because yeah. of, of the upbringing that we had. And then my mother had two children that the Nazis took away. Wow. Yeah, and so when we went to Krakow, where they're buried, we found the grave of her mother, father, her two children were buried there, and the wow. cemetery there is so desecrated yeah. that you couldn't find anything. It was wow. really hard, but they were trying to um, re re you know, rebuild it. But okay. the headstones were, when you walked there, they were actually headstones. That's how you walked on the, in the cemetery. Wow. It was, it was yeah. something because she wanted us, my little sister and I, to one day say, I was here yeah, with yeah. their grandmother. And my two yeah. kids are here, which wow. was their grandmother. Wow. Yeah, so we came to listen to your wow. story. Thank, thank you, you for so sharing much. that yeah, with yeah, us. Thank you. But it actually leads me to a question. Um, did your grandmother ever go back? She never went back to Auschwitz. She didn't want to go. I, I know she watched um, Schindler's List, I think mm -hmm. she watched. And my grandfather was so upset. Why are you watching that? You went through that. And I think she watched it with my mother. Um, and my mother remembers her being like, oh, it didn't look like that. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's so nice. It wouldn't, we wish it looked like that. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, they did not do this well. Mm -hmm. She was not happy with that. Um, I watched the boy in striped pajamas with yeah. her. I don't know why I did that to her, mm -hmm. but we watched that, and and she also said like, nah, it didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't look like that. But she did go back to her town. She loved her town in Romania. Romania. 
and she went back and she they had such good friends there that she met so mm, it was nice great. yeah um, Trisha there was a question right here the woman in the brown yeah, I was wondering, um, my father-in-law is a Holocaust survivor. He was in Auschwitz um, for years, and um, he talked um, just recently about what it was like. Actually, he was here in October, and he oh. went to the Holocaust ex exhibit here, and how it, how it started. He was talking about how, like, they wouldn't let the Jews go to school, right. and they put them in the ghettos, and, you know, it's just, I wanted to know what she talked about. Because they said, how could this happen, that people just yeah. get on trains and... And he said it sort of started over a period of time. Yeah. So actually, it's, it's interesting because in school, we've always learned like the slow indoctrination mm -hmm. and the slow propaganda and the lead up. But for her, she had no idea. And she said there was some, she lived in a small village. She said that there were some people that came from Poland and they were like, you don't know what's happening to the Jews, and they said, these are crazy people, like paranoid, crazy people. They didn't believe them, and people told them. They didn't believe anything, um, which was kind of scary that they, they were like, this is a civilized world. Nothing like that could happen here. But, but um, it did. It was from one day to the next for her. Like, there was a few incidents. Somebody, was, uh, somebody called her brother a dirty Jew mm -hmm. in the street, and, and her mother lost her job, but nothing major. And she had, they were shocked from one day to the next. Mm -hmm. They were just like all Jews to the town square. And that was it. Mm -hmm. There was a question way mm -hmm. in the back there, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering, I thought I heard you say that she was also in today's and stuff? Yes, for and 10 days. How long? 10 days. 10 days, yeah, I, and that's such a different camp than all the others, and yeah. I was curious to know what she reported about her time there. She really heard like a lot of the fighting. She was underground in a bunker, and it was at the end, end of the war. They just put them there from the death march. There, not, she didn't do anything there. They were just laying there, she said, like lifeless, waiting like for nothing. They didn't know what they were waiting for. She was very, very, very sick at that point in between. I mean, not sick, but she was without any food for a very long time. So, so she was just laying there. And then, and then she came out. And she worked, actually, there was a, because Theresienstadt was the propaganda camp. And they had an old aged home there. So the Nazis could show everyone that we have, we are go so good, we, we even treat the, the they showed the Red Cross this. Like, we treat the old people so well. And she worked in the, in the afterwards. Mm -hmm. She knew that, like, if she doesn't get moving and start working right away, she's going to lose her mind. So she started working. She worked there. She was helping all the old people there. Um, and she was, like, feeding them in, in Theresienstadt. And they, they gave her clothes. Um, so that's, that was her experience there. Yeah, thank you. There's a question right here. Hi. First of all, I just want to say thank you, and I'm, I'm so impressed by your grandma, you. grandmother. Sorry, I'm getting very emotional. I was looking down with such pride. Thank so you. thank you. I have a daughter who will be attending college next fall. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the application process was difficult. Obviously, a lot of change in attitude, and I'm so grateful for our community here in Thousand Oaks that her friends are so supportive. 
you know, non-Jewish, obviously Jewish, and the community as a whole. What would you recommend? I'm doing everything as a mother to help fight this, writing to, you know, congressmen, senators. What more in this age of social media can this group do to help combat all these fallacies that are going around on social media to not indoctrinate this younger generation? That's a really good question and, and a, a scary question. Um, she loved social media, my grandmother, speaking mm. of. Yeah, she has an Instagram handle. She had like 100,000 followers. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> she believed, she, she was so grateful to all of her followers. You can still look her up and see her videos. It's mm -hmm. called the Reddit of Auschwitz. And she would talk about like um, really, really learn about things and be kind and, and be careful of what you say and words matter and things like that. Um, so, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm at a loss for, for that. It's the only thing, yeah, to pray, yeah, because. I think also, you know, the other thing, my daughter's college counselor, who's Jewish, said a lot of the problems is that a lot of these elite universities are, are getting hundreds of millions of dollars from Middle Eastern countries. Right. Bringing in, as part of the deal, bringing in professors and students who don't share the same values as we do here in or right. um, so we just got to keep fighting that battle. Yeah. And just, you know, your book obviously yeah. tells that story, so thank you for doing Thank that. you. When I, when I wrote the book, I never thought it would be so needed. I didn't, I didn't think, I, I thought, okay, you know, I was shocked yeah. by that, so, mm. yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Are there, oh, there's a question over here, Trish. Hi, your your grandma was 19 or 20 when she was liberated, right? 19, yeah. How long did it take her to lose her bitterness and be able to take part in the grand life that she lived and not look at herself as a victim? That's a very good question. I think right away she was in um, rebuild mode, uh, she learned how to cook. Her mother never let her in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So she learned afterwards. She found this lady who used to work by Jewish homes to teach her how to cook kosher because she had no idea how to do anything. And, and she, had, um, uh, she was feeding people. And, and that's really what she said, like the, the giving to other people really kept her going. Um, I think more... Um, as it like started to hit her later on, it was harder for her. So it wasn't, she, she wasn't bitter right away, I don't think. Um, I think she said, she told me one time, and I, and I was so appreciative that she said, um, she's like, I really lost myself at a certain point afterwards, um, maybe after she had a baby. And she said, I lost myself. But she said, don't you know, if you're lost, you can always be found. Mm -hmm. So then I found myself, and she kept going, and she got up after that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it wasn't, it was never easy for her. She fought for it. She, I mean, I think there's also part of it was her nature, but she fought to, to dance and she fought to sing and she fought to get dressed up and go out. And um, she was always so glad that she did it afterwards, but um, it was something that she, she fought for.
Thank you. You had said she wanted to live because she wanted a family. So um, at the end of her life, how big had she grown that family? Oh, I have it. I didn't even know the numbers. Mm -hmm. She had five kids. When, when she was 43 years old, she um, got pregnant again. And the doctors told her there was a lot of complications. The doctors told her, there's, if, if you have this baby, I'll eat my hat. Mm -hmm. And she said, Dr. Katz, you better start chewing. Mm -hmm. And she put herself into bed. And she had my mother a couple months later. And then my mother had nine children on the third. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then she has, so I'll, I'll get you the exact number, mm -hmm. but there's more now. There's, there's talking about her grandfather's love. My, my little baby that's here is named after her grandfather. Yeah. So um, I'll get the exact. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of, I have a video of her like telling my daughter, this is what I live for. Mm -hmm. You're everything to me. Um, as I write this now, the redhead who promised herself that she was going home has five children, 28 grandchildren, 120 great-grandchildren and seven, so now it must be like 10 at least, great-great-grandchildren. Yeah. That's and, incredible. Yeah. She she what a testament yeah. to her life. Yeah, yeah. And that was her dream to have these, that, to have these kids. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, are there any other questions before we conclude? Oh, um, there's two more. Let's start right here, Tricia. Yeah. Um, where, where where did she go after the liberation? Where did she go back to Romania, or did she go yeah, elsewhere? They, they went. She went back home. You know, so sad. She thought her mother was going to be there waiting for her and her brother. Mm. So she was going like the whole time. She didn't want to get like there were some people going different places, and she was on a mission to get back to her hometown to find her mother and find her brother. And she was so she loved her town also. She always described it, you know, as I was driving here, actually, it reminded me a little bit of this, the way mm -hmm. she described it, the mountains mm -hmm. overlooking, and it was so beautiful, she said. It was a small Romanian village. Um, she was going home to find her, to find her mother. Um, then she went, she went back to her town, but even after she got to her town, there was a lot of anti-Semitism there, and they said, go, get away from here. Someone took over their house and said, you don't belong here, get out. So she left and went to a neighboring village, and then she found my grandfather, and then, yeah. And we're going to do the last, go, go. Her sister, um, she, she, she was separated from her sister afterwards. Her sister found her husband, my great uncle, um, and they went to, everyone was looking for families, she said. So they went to further down in Romania to find his family to see if they survived. Uh, after they found out that her mother and brother didn't survive. So, yeah. And this will be the last question back here. What's up? Um, what kind of advice would you give the youth who are, like, struggling through, like, grief? How, would, how did she exactly get over, like, the grieving process, mm -hmm. especially since her being so young at 18? Such a good question. She, well, I, I always like what she said, that if you're lost, you can always be found. And don't stop looking for yourself. And like it's okay. It doesn't have to be a perfect journey. Like it's it's okay if you lose yourself. It's okay if you're sad. It's okay if you're you're really upset. Um, you don't have to shut off your emotions. Um, but also, I, I she said singing helped a lot. Just singing, just mm -hmm. sing, 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 sing. Um, and she said that. Finding a purpose 
really helped her, like giving to other people. Really helped her because she wasn't so consumed in her own pain, which is all consuming, and she was able to say, well, I, I, even she said, even in her job, like she worked until she was 75 years old as a, a fashion consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to go to her and she'd be like, what are you wearing? Mm-hmm. I went, okay. Mm-hmm. And she would give me lots of advice, mm-hmm. but she, it was good advice. But she said, um, she would like, there was people who were there that couldn't, that weren't as good as their job. Like they, they were having a hard time adjusting to the job and she would help them like give them tips, like even little things that was very helpful for her to, to focus on someone else, not just herself. Because um, if you're, I, I saw, I think she told me once, if you're here to take, there's a lot of bad things in this world, but if you, there's not a lot of, there's not so many opportunities to take, but there's a lot of opportunities to give. Mm. So I think that's the way she got through it. Mm. Yeah. That's a great way. And so um, we're about to end, and we're going to do a book signing. But before we do, I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done with an author. I'm going to read a portion of your book. Um, this is the last paragraph. And usually you're not supposed to read the ending before you read the beginning. But this is the last paragraph of her book. It says, my grandmother was laid to rest on May 8, 2022, exactly 77 years from the May 8th in which she was liberated. She spent her time in the hospital signing her book for the doctors and spreading her message of love. One of the last things she asked me was, is the book still being read? It was her life's dream that the world should know her story and learn from it. I'm so grateful she lived to see it happen. So I wanted to read that paragraph to all of you because this is when we go to do the book signing. And what better way to fulfill her grandmother's wish than to buy the book and read it and and help share her story. So I want to thank you for coming. We're going to be signing books right outside this door. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Copies of The Redhead of Auschwitz can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, including all programming associated with our Auschwitz exhibition, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.